It's been 22 years, and still, Chris cannot help but sucker Dave into another discussion of the X-Men. We're discussing X-Men, the first movie from 2000 on today's episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Ladies and gentle people, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only podcast where even 22-year-old movies are still fair game. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and today we will be fixing the very first X-Men movie from the year 2000. But first, as always, it is time for some... So, Chris, what's new? Well, Deadline dropped some big news this week as it was announced that Will Smith and Michael B. Jordan will be starring in and producing a sequel to 2007 hit film I Am Legend. Now, details are as scarce as the supplies in the film's post-apocalyptic New York City, but it was confirmed that Oscar winner Akiva Goldsman will be returning to write this script as well. The original film is based on Richard Matheson's 1954 novel of the same name, Dave, that's not a lot to go on, but enough for get me excited. What about you? Not really, to be completely honest with you. Uh, and this might be, um, you know, a, a little bit negative. But uh, although I like the overall uh, movie, I Am Legend, uh, with Will Smith, I think they did some serious miscalculations with the ending. Um, so if I remember my uh, story correctly here, uh, they filmed the uh, original ending very much in line with um what the novel was like which is uh sort of the character played by will smith i believe his name was neville uh realizing that he is these creatures boogeyman he's the stuff of nightmares um and and so this basically he's sort of the bad guy in their story and it's a it's a very powerful realization and they filmed this ending apparently for the original uh, i am legend and then uh test screening sort of indicated you know people didn't like it and they refilmed a completely different ending, which includes sort of an extended flash forward and how civilization has been like rebuilt. And, and you know, Will Smith will continue to be the hero of the story rather than playing into this realization that maybe, you know, he, he was actually the villain and we've been sort of rooting for the wrong people the whole time. And it kind of twisted what is a really, really cool little science fiction story with a great ending into something much more generic, I feel. And uh, I think a lot of people ended up feeling like this in the long term. So sort of in the short term, it was fine. But then in the long term, as the movie became sort of reevaluated, a lot of people, um, including myself, sort of uh, cried out for the original ending as as a more um, adding more depth to the uh, actual movie than than it had in the long run. And so revisiting that world seems awkward to me for, for that reason first. Um, and secondly, because again, the first movie had this extended, you know, flash forward and also Will Smith's character famously died at the end of the original. So it seems to me like a, they're going to tie themselves into pretzels to try to revive Will Smith's character. B, this is not inspired by the original author's work, but is something going to be wholly original. 
Um, and C, I wasn't horribly satisfied with the ending of the first movie to begin with. And so uh, although I love the idea of Will Smith and Michael B. Jordan kind of sharing the screen and working on something together, I think that is inspired. Um, I don't know if this is the project that's going to get me hyped, Chris. That's really interesting. I see I didn't have any of that context. I remember something about the ending, like when they released it. Um to like at home DVD or Blu-ray. I remember some kind of blurbs about it, but I didn't really investigate it further. And it's been a while since I've watched it. So that's really, really interesting. But um, so that's, that provides some really important context. Yeah. And again, you know, I think the combination of, of, you know, Will Smith and Michael B. Jordan would be incredibly potent. Um, I think it would be very fun to see them in this, this kind of post-apocalyptic science fiction setting together. Um, but I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, I want to be excited about this, but man, I've been burnt before, I guess, is, uh, <laughs> where I come down on with this. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, Dave, your news story for this week, I, I wish it resonated with me more, but uh, what, what you got? Yeah, so we, we're finally getting, uh, apparently, a, a live-action Booster Gold. Uh, there was, um, you know, a very uh, sort of short one-episode-off appearance of the famous DC character um, in uh, Smallville way back in the day. Um, but Smallville was not exactly known for executing uh, comic book characters all that competently sometimes. Um and, and this uh, actually is super interesting. So DC's Legends of Tomorrow, uh, which is sort of the little show that could, bizarre as it is and weird and out there, uh, it continues to truck along. And in its season finale recently, they brought in Donald Faison to play Booster Gold, which is incredibly inspired casting considering uh, who Booster Gold is and his character. I, I, I think that's just absolutely inspired casting. Booster Gold is... Uh, from DC Comics, obviously, he um, is sort of this uh, down-on-his-luck former professional athlete who steals some gear in the future and then travels back to the past to become a superhero with a very, very strong leaning towards um, commercialism and trying to make a quick buck. He's incredibly arrogant. Um, and at the same time, he's a character that goes through great growth um, and turns into a really heroic character that sort of has to learn to temper uh, his arrogance a little bit. Um, there's been a couple of different Booster Gold solo series, but my favorite uh, launched sort of out of the end of, um, I want to say out of the end of Infinite Crisis or something like that, and, and ran for you know a few years and featured Booster Gold traveling through time and trying to um, fix problems in the timeline and you know obviously that lent itself to sorts of uh, all sorts of cameos from like dc comics characters at various stages of their history and the like um so you know donald Faison didn't exactly suit up uh, in this season finale he kind of pops up um he's sort of mostly in civilian garb but it's pretty clear who he's supposed to be of course, DC's Legends of Tomorrow has not been renewed yet, but here's hoping that uh, if they are renewed, that there is a, a big role for Booster Gold, who is sort of the quintessential out-of-time-slash-time-travel hero uh, I think that DC Comics has produced, and, and just a very, very fun character to watch. And with, you know, with Faison's natural charisma, um, I think he can pull off that role absolutely aces. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to see where this goes. I've fallen off the wagon uh, with Legends of Tomorrow for the last few seasons, but this might be some that would bring me back into fold just to see uh, one of my favorite uh, sort of under-the-radar superheroes kind of get his due. 
Yeah. <clears throat> and like I said in the in, in my kind of kick to you, I wish this resonated with me more. I checked out from the Arrowverse oh so long ago. Um, you know, as I've detailed on the show before. It's just it's just not my shtick. Like it's very it's very much its own thing and it just does not vibe with me um this might be enough to bring me back um especially if um they listen to the rampant fan speculation and cast zach braff as ted cord uh that would be amazing to see them on the screen together just their natural chemistry and friendship uh you know i'm a big scrubs fan so that would be amazing but um you know that's pie in the sky hopes yeah i just i just wish i've heard good things about legends of tomorrow i've heard good things about the second season of batwoman uh the whole ryan wilder new character is intriguing to me um but i don't know that it's enough it's just i you know you talked you talked about being burnt too many times and uh the arrowverse did that to me one too many times i think I think the Arrow, Arrowverse might be poised to kind of turn a corner if this whole, you know, sale of the CW doesn't, you know, completely ruin any original programming. You know, that that's kind of on the horizon. But I think uh, Superman and Lois in particular has kind of shown that uh, they're, they're, there's a different approach that they can take to these kinds of shows that can be extremely uh, successful and resonate with critics as well. I think Superman and Lois has been really, really good quality um you know, superhero entertainment. So it, maybe they're on the right track here. And Legends, I think, for the most part, it's kind of morphed into its very, very own thing. Really, um, only tangentially uh, does it even feel like something DC Comics related. It's just this really bonkers, zany time travel crew, you know, and and it's it's fun in a very different kind of way and very different from anything else that the, the CW has been offering superhero-wise. So I think Superman and Lois is a good indicator that the future could be bright if they lean into you know that kind of approach. And Legends is just, it's so its own thing. It's so completely changed from what it was in its first season. It's absolutely bonkers. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's our nerd news. When we come back, it's time for this week's Big Talk, when we dissect and improve the very first X-Men movie from the year 2000. Stick around. Ladies and gentle people, welcome back. So it is now time for our very, very large supersize segment. You know it as the... And in this week's Big Talk, we wanted to once again try our hands at fixing a movie. And in this case, of course, we're going to be looking at the very first X-Men movie from the Fox franchise. Now, we all know that this franchise has had some some ups and downs and many, many downs, if we're going to, going to be completely honest with each other. Um, but I think it pays uh, you know, off to remember that the very first X-Men movie was sort of a game changer in one of the movies that opened the door to more... Uh, superhero adaptations in cinema. It's an incredibly significant movie um, directed by uh, Brian Singer, um, featuring, of course, Sir Patrick Stewart and Sir Ian McClellan in the roles of Professor Charles Xavier and our good friend Magneto, respectively. Uh, and, you know, we had a very, very uh, large and, uh, um, you know, varied cast uh, embodying the various X-Men. It is a product of its time, 
And I think it's probably not entirely fair to rip it too much for being a product of its time. However, narratively speaking, I think there are still many things that could be improved. Chris, what is your thought about fixing something in the original X-Men movie? Um, I think we need a complete revamp of several characters because they are woefully misinterpreted. Um, and we've detailed this on the show before. I'm all for a reinterpretation as long as you do not lose the core aspects of the character. And I think there are four characters in particular that stand out as just woeful, woeful misinterpretations. I think perhaps the greatest sin of this entire film franchise um, is the characterization of Rogue. Um, I think they were going for something completely different. Um, as this quasi point of view character, but then didn't fully commit to it. Um, and then I understand that they were trying to go for this emotional recluse because of her power set. But in doing so, they completely stripped her of anything that makes the character great. Um, I think X-Men Evolution, which came a few years after this, did a much better job of going this quote unquote emo rogue route because they encapsulated the, 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 you know, the social isolation and things of that nature, but still did not strip her down powerless and, and devoid of any kind of uniqueness or compelling character development. Um, another big sin for me was the characterization of Storm. Um, you know, Storm is one of the most important characters in all of comics, not just Marvel. Um, you know, is probably the most prominent black female character. And she's very much reduced to a supportive, um, doting maternal character and is completely nerfed. She has this one scene that is very, very, um, the, the, what happens to a toad when it gets struck by lightning scene is just very, so much its own thing and um that's probably like the only time that she gets to really kind of flex in this movie every other time she's just getting you know beat up by everybody and that's just very very disappointing and um you know the casting as Halle Berry you know Halle Berry gets a bad rap a lot you know for these films for the Catwoman films but you know at the same time she is kind of um such an influential you know, person for, you know, representation. And she's kind of the forerunner uh, in a lot of ways for, for what we have now, as far as representation goes. Um, So it's just really, really unfortunate that they gave kind of her this mess to kind of work with. So, so storm is particularly troubling to me. Um, Sabretooth is like, just so weird. The eyebrows are strange. His eyebrows go down past his chin um he's mute for the most part um and then completely divorcing him from his long storied history with wolverine is a huge misstep in my opinion um so much so that they like redid the character in x-men wolverine origins which is a horrible horrible film but liev schreiber and his you know character of saber tooth is is one of the one of the redeeming few redeemable things about that film um, but it, it, 
there are so many missteps in this franchise that they have to go and reintroduce characters with with recastings and it creates this mucky messy timeline if they would have just got it right the first time and not diverged from you know the true character's path so you know Sabretooth is nothing more than just a big brute enforcer in this film um and then the character of Mystique as well is the fourth one um we'll t- we'll talk about your misgivings with the characters which I'll wholeheartedly agree so I'll save that aspect of the character for a moment but uh she barely has any lines whatsoever as well and um Mystique is one of if not the most important adversaries after Magneto I think for me um in the whole grand scheme of things and she's such a compelling character lover or hater um she's immediately compelling and one of you know the most interesting characters in all of the x-men comics because of her espionage background because of her history because of her skill set and you know she's reduced to just you know window dressing here quite literally and she has barely any lines and there's like no development whatsoever so uh those four characters in particular stood out to me they're not giving very much agency very they're very much off the mark like did not even hit the target at all yeah you know i I will agree with that i think that there are several characters that i think the movie does nail really well i think um i think sir patrick stewart as charles xavier is 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 pretty much excellent from my knowledge of the x-men at least and you know ian mcclellan as as magneto is just fun to watch on screen he's just really 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 good almost almost shakespearean i'd Mm -hmm. say um so there are there are definitely um there are definitely good things going on in this movie with characterization the problem with the x-men is that it is an incredibly vast uh universe onto itself almost and there are so many characters one of the things that you have to do in a movie like this is you pick your characters that you're going to use you know this is the first first X-Men movie. You pick your characters and then you lean into those characters. You develop them carefully and then in, you know, potential sequels you can maybe introduce more of that, you know, universe and widen it out. But I think the overall problem is that we never really got to that point very well in this first movie simply because all the characters get reduced to an archetype of some kind. You know, you have, you know, um, a Storm the Mother. You have Jean Grey the Healer. You know, you have... Um, uh, I guess you could say Cyclops to Dick, but I guess the leader's better there. Um, you know, you have Charles Xavier, the wise old mentor. Like everybody gets reduced to a certain extent to an archetype rather than being a character. I think one of the problems too is that the movie is just very lean in its runtime. Um, it's like what ninety some minutes long mm-hmm. or something. It's yeah. very fast, and when you're looking at an ensemble movie like this. That, that's problematic. I'm going to talk more about that later. Um, but yeah, you're right. The characters had really no room to breathe, uh, to, to, to really get their own moments and, and characterization. They're all just reduced to archetypes. And in an ensemble movie like this, <clears throat> you can't just make it a Wolverine show and it happened early, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and as a big Cyclops fan, that was like my outside looking in character on that was kind of misused. Um, he's very, very much an archetype. As you said, he's very wooden, very cardboard cut out. 
type of Boy Scout leader. The only the only scene and rewatching this for the in prep for the episode, the only scene that really stood out to me that I was like, yes, Cyclops as a fan um, was where he's talking to Professor Xavier as he's laying on the table there and he's like, I'll take care of them, you know, and it's like that was a great moment for him. But that's about it. The rest of it, he's just very staunch and very Boy Scout. And, you know, and, 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 and in fairness, at the time, we didn't get the development of Cyclops until, you know, I want to say it was 2012 or 2014 when Bendis took the character and kind of made him this disillusioned revolutionary you know, um, that I've talked about before and, and it has turned him into one of my all time favorite characters in comics. Um, but at the same time, I, I really think that he was not given a lot of depth and seeing future, um, you know, acting jobs by James Marsden, it's, it's, it's increasingly frustrating, particularly like in something like Westworld, where he's very similar type of character as Cyclops was in this era. And then they just didn't give him anything in this film or much of the series at all. And and I think that's fair for a lot of actors. There were certain actors that were well served, but a, a huge chunk just was not. All right, Dave. Um, I kind of hinted at part of this, but what is your first big fix of this film? Well, I think that the the, the general uh, character designs—I guess we could call them costuming, whatever—is it, it, just not good. Uh, first of all, you know, we're leaning into the climax and putting everybody in like black faux leather is like the most ridiculous thing ever. I mean, I think it's fair to say that that kind of material does not lend itself to any kind of flexibility to begin with, but it's also visually incredibly boring. And I think we all know what was happening here. You know, everybody was trying to sort of um, distance themselves from like, you know, stuff like Batman and Robin, stuff that really leaned into the comic bookiness of it all. And and therefore, if you wanted to be a comic book adaptation and be taken seriously, then, hey, you can't, you can't do the colorful costumes. I mean, you know, Smallville was in a similar situation for years, you know, no flights, no tights, you know, we're not, we're, we're not that kind of show. We're adapting a comic book, but we're making it more serious and better. And I think it's just such a, a, a misfire for this movie that, you know, it, it kind of drains all the colorfulness out of it, that there are no no costumes, there's no uniqueness uh, to their looks. And even if you leaned into something that's a little more like, um, you know, Grant Morrison, where they're not necessarily wearing costumes, but they do have, you know, <clears throat> sort of uniforms that each are, are a little individualized to, to the character, um, would have been a huge step in the right direction. And don't get me started... Don't get me started on Mystique running around naked for the whole movie. <laughs> it gives me it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um, it, it's it's so blatant an attempt at like I guess like over sexualization of the character to have her run around naked the whole time. Um, it, it's it's just really odd, um, and it just it just it just rubs me the wrong way. So visually speaking, I think there are a lot of missteps here. Um, and I'm not even going to complain about like, well, Wolverine is too tall because, you know, in that particular case, like the casting of Hugh Jackman was really good. And he he turned out to be a great, you know, a great Wolverine. But just visually, this is an incredibly boring movie and leaning into costumes a little bit, um, you know, would have gone a long way to, to pop this movie up a little bit visually. Yeah, it's very much bland. Uh, it's very, very blase uh particularly you know in that that climactic battle at night and they're all wearing black leather with no kind of discernible features 
it really it just like doesn't give you anything to to latch onto visually. Um, you know, with Mystique, it's just inexplicable. Like, why? Why is she naked? Like, what? What is that? It, it's crazy to me that um, twice they have, you know, in this franchise that they they went for you know, uh, mystique and they tried to, uh, you know, really nail this character and they missed so poorly. Um, it just like anything about the core aspects of the character, like it just completely misses. And this is no, I, you know, Rebecca remain really give her best, but like, they didn't give her anything. I mean, like just inexplicable nudity, like for what, uh, you know, so, uh, it kind of leans into a future point that, um, that I'll have, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, inexplicably weird i don't know man if i were blue i too would run around naked for the most part i think i think i think there's just something about being blue you just don't need clothes man i think i think that's the trick that that's really the ticket all right chris so what is your second fix for our x-men movie here it's kind of a, a difficult thing you know when you're looking at something that's 22 years old but um this movie is painfully painfully of its time and it is trapped there i think um however you know you go back to older you know superhero films i think 78 superman i think you know the the burton batman films while they are older than this i don't feel like they're trapped in that time and they're still enjoyable i think in addition to the stylistic choices with the black leather is is so year 2000 so 2000 um the inexplicable nudity for the male gaze it's very indicative of where we were as a society with with our entertainment choices it feels very year 2000 late 90s early 2000s um and, and this one, this one really like made me open the document and put this as my second point. Uh, the very, very strange stealing the motorcycle scene and it closes up on Wolverine's face and he's just smiling like from ear to ear. It's just so 2000. Like it feels like a bad, a bad music video from the time period. So I really think that the best movies, no matter when they were made, can kind of evolve past being like a period piece or something like that. And, and it can kind of, you know, have the rewatchability there. It's just not like cringing at, Oh my God, this is so insert year. And this, this, this film desperately needs to, to fix those things. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember <clears throat> a few years ago reading about like, the script development for Superman the movie. And yes, everything comes up Superman with me. And yes, I have a point about the X-Men movie here. Just give me a second, okay? Um, and some of the original script drafts were really interesting and in that they continuously tried to have like cameos or connections to pop culture. And the one that stuck out to me that I thought was absolutely bizarre is that in one of the scripts, there was supposed to be a scene where Superman meets Kojak. Now, for those of you that don't know, uh, Kojak was uh, a character from like uh, a police drama, uh, was uh, portrayed by Terry Savalas or something like that, was bald um, and uh, very, very popular in the 70s. And so there was supposed to be like this whole whole scene where Wait, like Superman isn't that, meets that's Kojak. Not the, that's not the, uh, the evil St. Bernard dog from the Stephen King movie, is it? No, that's that's not... No, that's Cujo. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> that would have been weird. That would have been a weird crossover. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. But but there's potential there. No, uh, so so Kojak was supposed to pop up in this movie and like have this interaction with Superman, and I think that kind of stuff instantly dates a movie when you you know have to have Macy Gray in the first Spider-Man movie performing a song, right? And nobody knows who Macy Gray is anymore, right? I mean, this this kind of stuff um, dates a movie, and I think Richard Donner made some very smart choices by removing those kinds of references and creating a movie that for the most part feels very timeless. Um, and so I think that is one of the failures of the first X-Men movie is that they, they don't try to make a movie that feels timeless. They make a movie that feels very much of its time. Um, and, you know, trying to lean into certain aesthetics with a comic book movie like this to try to make it feel a little more timeless, a little bit, a little bit other than the here and now in this very moment, oftentimes leads to a movie that is much more rewatchable in the long run. Um, so I think this is something that Superman the movie very specifically got right, even though it could have gotten it horrible, horribly wrong, and, and something that the X-Men movie does get wrong. Now I can't think of anything else except for Superman facing off against a rabid dog. <laughs> Only if he has like a kryptonite like dog collar on, then that would be like that that could be like the fight of the century. Uh, Dave, your second point is probably the most important fix of this entire franchise. Yeah, so what what every movie has to a certain extent is, you know, this point of view character, especially if you have like um uh, an, a large ensemble or a very different world like this, you naturally write a character who's an outsider for that world or that situation, and then basically learns all these things about this world as the audience does. And, you know, one of the things that I remember very vividly from the original X-Men cartoon is that that character was Jubilee, Jubilee right? I'm not, I'm not misremembering this, Chris, right? So in the in the first episode of the X Men, like mo most of the X Men are established, but Jubilee is the point of view character through which we learn about this mutant world. the The trick with a point of view character is that oftentimes they have to be sort of um, average, normal people, somebody that you could very closely relate to. Think um, Luke Skywalker at the beginning of uh, A New Hope. He's just this kid trapped in the middle of nowhere, having great dreams about you know doing something big. Who cannot relate to that to some extent, right? And then he learns about the Jedi and, and all that, and through him we learn about that. So Wolverine is that character in this movie. He's very much the point of view character. And he is not a relatable character. He is a healing factor, almost indestructible, metal claw wielding amnesiac who is of indeterminate age and apparently um, is about the furthest thing that you can get from sort of an everyday person that would be a great point of view character. Now, for, for a moment there, it feels like the point of view character is going to be this very poor interpretation of, of Rogue. But they very quickly shift, and the point of view character becomes Wolverine. And that is a huge misstep, because he is not a character that, that you relate to. He's a character that, that you look at from the outside and think, oh, that dude is crazy. Oh, that dude is cool. Oh, that dude is interesting. But it is not somebody that, that you relate, relate to. Like, you can't make Darth Vader the point of view character for Star Wars, right? 
Like that's just not going to work. When you jump into the first Star Wars movie, you know, Darth Vader is not going to be the point of view character. Obi-Wan Kenobi is not going to be the point of view character. He, at this point, he's the wise old mentor, right? He, he has a very different role. And to me, at least, in most interpretations that I've come across of the X-Men, Wolverine is sort of the, the, the loose cannon, right? He's the, he's the guy who's very violent and he's, he's struggling against his, you know, trying to reach his better nature and he's trying to figure out who he is. And, and all those things are, are interesting, you know, from a literary perspective, sure. But I don't think he's the right character to be a point of view character. Like I'm thinking... What we what we got like with with Iceman, for example, and that whole thing, uh, he would have been an interesting point of view character. Rogue, although I don't like this version of Rogue much, would have been an interesting point of view character. There's something everyday and relatable there, and and they're being ripped from their quote unquote normal lives to be introduced to this larger world of of, of mutants, and, and there. It works there. It's interesting, but Wolverine, as the point of view character, does not work, and it really hurts the movie. I think. Yeah, and in, in, in addition to that, Wolverine uh, in the comics works best either on a solo adventure, his solo books, um, or if he's in an ensemble book like X Men, he works best as a supporting character to where he plays off of those point of view characters typically you know young teenage girls in most cases with kitty pride in the 80s and then jubilee in the late 80s late 80s and early 90s like the the thing that really kind of it's almost like a magnet that draws out the gruffness out of the gruffness and like this this you know the heart of the character is those young protagonists um, and his relationships with other people. And that brings out the best, I think, in him, at least in the story that I've read. So, you know, Kitty Pride or Jubilee or, you know, even his relationships with Nightcrawler and Colossus in the comics, um, particularly through the Claremont era, really bring out the best in the character. And and this big, gruff, masculine to the extreme testosterone overdose character like it brings out the tenderness and the care that he have has for his own. Um, and I think it's so, so not only are you choosing the wrong point of view character, you're not equipping Wolverine as a character to be his best possible self as a storytelling device, because you're removing that point of view character to, to bring those things out of him. So, and, and then immediately I see what they were trying to do with rogue. They were trying to make like, as soon as she came on the screen and now being more well-versed than I was when this movie came out, um, I was like, Oh, this is supposed to be Kitty pride or this is supposed to be Jubilee. And maybe they were trying to not go, you know, a direct adaptation of the animated series with Jubilee. Um, but it, it just it's such a huge misstep um, that even in this poor interpretation of Rogue, they immediately eschewed it after 15, 20 minutes of screen time. Yeah, that's exactly right. You'd think she's going to be the point of view character and then she just kind of like disappears into the larger narrative and, and Wolverine takes that place. So, yeah, you know, it, it's very interesting that you say that about like the teenage protagonist, because I remember reading, you know, my, doing my big Miss um, Marvel read through, my Kamala Khan read through, and there was a great, great little crossover where she interacts with Wolverine, and their interactions were sort of absolutely pitch perfect. They were a lot of fun to watch, 
um, as this gruff character kind of plays off of the super over enthusiastic teenage girl. Uh, it's still one of my favorite issues of, of her entire career. So I totally see how, how that would work and how they might even have been trying to tap into that with this movie, but, but failed pretty spectacularly at it. Yeah, I think um, even 616, but I, I distinctly remember um, the ultimate uh, Spider-Man and Wolverine were really fun together. Remember that issue where they swap bodies? That was super fun. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. That that issue, I have some uh, issues with, particularly the implication that while Wolverine was in Peter Parker's body, that he was like, you know trying to go all the way with the teenage Mary Jane. That just make that just makes Wolverine extra creepy, I think, in that universe. <laughs> like that's just really weird, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, so th- th- that's I think that's the biggest thing is um Wolverine is at his best juxtaposed against different characters. And you know, to bring it back to Nightcrawler, is someone who's deeply religious and deeply hopeful and optimistic and just fun loving swashbuckling type character with this person who's been alive for hundreds of years because of his healing factor. And he's seen so much of the world. He's this pessimistic realist pragmatist and just the juxtaposition of them is, 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 is fantastic to read and it's completely lost here. Yeah. There's a lot of things lost here. All right, Chris, you have one more big fix. What have you got? So I love the idea of turning Senator Kelly into the thing that he hates but the execution is just horrible like we don't get and and magneto i love the whole magneto speech i think serene mckellen's um you know theater background is on full flex there but they just strap him into this suit or strap him into this machine with no explanation it just does and i think that's a misstep like we could have just been like he he does it after the fact where he's like, now you've become the thing that you hate. But I think they could have really played that up. And then just the execution and the weird goopy waterness of it all, I think I think was so cartoony and goofy. Like I understand the idea of his body rejecting the mutation, but I think it would have been much more powerful and impactful if it was visualized in a different way. And I think it was, it's, it's such a weird execution um, that, you know, Robert Kelly is famously right. Probably the big, one of the biggest antagonists, at least at the early X-Men stories and turning him into the thing that he hates the most is incredibly powerful. It's just, the execution is awful. You know, I'll, I'll I'll agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that whole machine plot. Um, I, I know that they were trying to have something really, really big. You know, they're gonna have, they're gonna have to save the world. Blah blah blah. But that machine makes like zero sense to me. I don't know how yeah. how mag how magnetism specifically will cause mutations. Like if they would have gone to some kind of radiation thing, maybe I could have seen like something working with that. <clears throat> but tying it directly into Magneto's power seemed um, weird odd um even if you wanted to do even if you wanted to say like look it extracts the x gene and extrapolates that onto other people that would have made more sense if you would explain that but there's like no explanation yeah there that's exactly right there's zero explanation for what they're doing here um but but even even more than that i think that i really agree with the fact that uh the visualization uh, of his mutation was really weird um i i 
you know, I know that they didn't want to give him, you know, quote unquote powers necessarily. And they probably wanted it to be icky because, you know, he's a villain. So if he's going to be a mutant, he's going to be an icky mutant. Um, I don't know, man. It's just very, very odd that 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 whole that whole plot thread didn't didn't quite go anywhere where I think it would go. Um, it didn't really go anywhere, really, because ultimately, what what does the whole Senator Kelly thing lead to? It leads to Mystique taking his place, and then that kind of that kind of goes in the pants almost immediately next to. So the whole that whole plot thread seems useless. I guess is the best way to put it. And I think at at its strongest. Um, this movie really plays up the fear of being persecuted for being different, for being who you were born to be. And unfortunately, there are maybe two to three minutes screen time max of where they do that. And I think they could have really driven that home. So I would have gone like like the scene where, um, you know, Magneto um, says, you know, they have a... a, a paraphrasing but they have you know a number tattooed on your forehead or something to that effect and it calls back on his his own personal demons of being a holocaust survivor and been being through all of this before and that's such that's one of that's why magneto is probably one of my all-time favorite characters in all of fiction is because of the depth of history there and and that's such a rich inspiration for a character that they really just completely don't even use. Imagine having all these weapons in your arsenal and just not using them to the fullest extent. Um, and that's something that I have a lot of qualms about X-Men first class. Um, rest in peace, Darwin, an unkillable character is killed five minutes later. No, don't even get me started. <laughs> but I think my favorite scene outside of Nightcrawler's introduction in X2, my favorite scene is the Nazi hunting scene in Argentina. Like that's something that that film absolutely nailed and it completely is just discarded and not even used in this film. Like you really could have played this up and have given so much more motivation for Magneto. Uh, and Magneto is one of those characters that a lot of people actually believe, you know, Magneto was right is a popular statement amongst the X-Men fandom because you see this and they completely don't even use it. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And I will say, again, um, Magneto is one of those things that is at least served somewhat well. That intro scene, um, you know, with, with, during the Holocaust is, is very, very powerful and really sets a very, very different kind of tone for you know, a comic book adaptation. Um, so, you know, th- there are things that work in this movie. That that scene, for sure, is one of those things. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll agree with that. And, and you know, like... Is like he's seen all this before, and and that explains his motivation, you know, at least in comics. Just like I'm not doing this again, so I'm going to be preemptively striking. I've I've lived through this. I luckily, fortunately, lived through this, but I'm not going through this again, and I'm not letting my people go through this again, um, just for being different. And and they completely crap the bed with that. I totally agree. All right, we hinted at it a little bit, Dave, but let's dive deeper into your final fix for this film. And I think this does deeply connect to your um, <clears throat> your complaint about the characters not being served well. I think the movie is too short for what it's trying to do. I think at the time period <clears throat> that we're looking at, uh, shorter movies, I think, generally were more popular. I think <clears throat> the Batman that was just released is like almost three hours long, and it's hard to imagine 
something like that happening in the 2000s. There was definitely drive for like the 90, 95 minute mark in movies. But when you're dealing with a a franchise like the X-Men and you have that many characters to juggle, I think it's just a movie that's just too short. And I think if you add 20 minutes and hit this this magical two-hour, two-hour, five-minute mark, you could have had a lot more character scenes to flesh out some of these characters. You know, having moments where Sabretooth and Wolverine are fighting and Sabretooth hints at their shared history would have already made him a more interesting character, you know? Giving <clears throat> giving Storm some, some room to shine, giving some additional lines to somebody like Mystique. I think, you know, it, it doesn't take a whole lot to make these characters more well-rounded and removing them from like this archetype situation. So you add uh, 20 minutes of runtime to this movie, you're going to make a a significant difference, I believe. It's just too darn short for the amount of characters it's trying to juggle, Chris. Yeah, and and I think even some of the things that they tried to go for um, didn't hit as well as it should have. I'm thinking particularly of the, the Wolverine versus Cyclops hate fest. Um, they're, they're together on screen for all of two seconds. And so this whole rivalry. And they immediately them. hate each other. Yeah, They like, immediately hate each other for no reason. Like, yeah. I hate you. I hate you too. Why? I don't know. But we yeah. hate each other. Okay, good. Now, <laughs> now that we know that. And, you know, like, you know, famously X2 is, you know, for me far and away you know the diamond in the rough and i'm looking at it right now the runtime i was curious i just googled it it's two hours and 15 minutes so imagine that you give it a little bit more juice and you have arguably the best one of the entire franchise um and that's with a good deal amount more characters in there and i think even you know some of the reason some of those characters are better served is is thinking of this first film as you know character development so you know uh, yeah, it, it really is just unfortunate uh, that, uh, it, like I said, it, and this further proves the point of it being of its time too. You're trying to fit into that niche, and you know your film suffers because of it. You know, if if the Batman, which, um, you know, is is a nearly three hour film for a solo character, like why would you have that for an ensemble? And I think that's one of the difficult things about you know nailing a team up story. Um, is you have to give everybody enough time. And, you know, uh, you know, the first Avengers film did that pretty well, I thought, threaded the needle when you have all these characters coming together. And I think if, if, if and when, I think part of the reason we did this um, review as well as we prepare for mutants to come into the MCU and like our hopes for, um, you know, what we want to see differently and how we want it handled better, I think if we tighten the cast there and even if we have to make it smaller, at first, um, at least have a tighter core and execute them well before you branch out, I think would be one of my my greatest hopes. And a lot of people have even speculated about a lot of Disney Plus series for certain characters. And I think that would be beneficial because you have such an expansive roster, but don't just like start running before you walk. I'm also troubled, though, about the notion that we're going to make all these Disney Plus series somehow required viewing to understand what's going on on screen, you know, like a movie has to be able to stand on its own. And, and, and this one, you know, it it doesn't do what it needs to do to introduce all these characters. I mean, you cited Avengers as a movie that that threads that needle pretty well. But even Avengers, 
um, you know, you, you're dealing with with Iron Man and Captain America as, as previous standalone movies, with Thor as a previous standalone movie. So you're walking right away in the characters that the general audience was already familiar with. The first X-Men movie, uh, except for comic book fans or, or somebody who's watched the old animated series, everybody's coming into this cold and all the characters are, are new and need to be introduced well from the word go. And I think... I think the MCU has its work cut out for it with mutants at this point because, you know, Fox has kind of run it into the ground. And how much can you do with a Wolverine in the in the MCU at this point unless you're willing to go very different and maybe have, you know, Laura Kinney as Wolverine from the get-go and then later do like an old man Wolverine kind of popping up. Oh, he's still alive or something and have like this really old grumpy Wolverine rather than doing what what you know fox has done because they've relied on hugh jackman pretty heavily to carry this franchise there are things that the mcu is going to have a very difficult time at because for all of the things that the fox x-men franchise did wrong um there are things that they did right uh i don't think how easy is it going to be to top something like patrick stewart as professor charles xavier like where do you go to a casting that is better than Patrick Stewart. Like, like that is incredible casting. It's, it's almost quintessential. So, you know, they have their work cut out for them in trying to do X-Men and do them well. And that worries me a little bit, because if you look at the Spider-Man movies, for example, we had a similar situation there. Sony had been running into, into the ground through two different franchises. And then when it was time for the MCU to do Spider-Man, they did Spider-Man very, very differently. And instead of getting a, a version of the character for a while that we could call quintessential, we got a character that felt very, very different from you know traditional Spider-Man storytelling. So I hope in a lot of ways, that what we get from the MCU is quintessential X-Men and not we need to make something really, really different just to make it different from Fox. I'm, I'm worried about what's going to happen with the X-Men in the MCU, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I think for me, I, I, I've been beating this drum for a long time. The longer they take for it to wash the stink off of Fox, so to speak, and just really kind of have a solid plan. Like, we haven't even announced anything officially to do with mutants whatsoever um and i think that's for the best they have clear plans for the mcu going forward with with other franchises and with other characters and i think that's for the best so take your time really have this ironed out and plan for what you want to do now patrick stewart um sir patrick stewart more or less confirmed that he will be in multiverse of madness so uh we'll see where we go from here but we haven't seen anything officially officially and and even that is troubling because why in the world would you go uh, reference those old Fox movies if you're getting ready to try to introduce your own take on on the X Men? Like that that is that is not a good that is not a good look. Even you know when they decided to go back to like <clears throat> Tobey Maguire Spider Man and Andrew Garfield Spider Man, we already had two different Spider Man movies where they took their time establishing the MCU take on Spider-Man. But here we are, we have not no official announcement, nothing about what they're doing with X-Men, and we're back to referencing the Fox X-Men franchise. I, I don't think this is a good move, Chris. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll just have to hope that it plays out well in the long run, I guess. Alrighty, folks. Well, there you have it. We have our 
fixes for the uh, original X-Men movie from 2000. Uh, also a little bit of belly aching about our concerns about the X-Men's future in the MCU. Uh, how do you feel about this movie? How would you fix it? And what do you hope is the future of the X-Men franchise now that it's going to be part of the MCU? Uh, hit us up on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and, of course, individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. After our final break, it's going to be time for some nerd commendations, so stick around. And we're back, and it's time for our favorite segment where we get to recommend to you our favorite current nerdy media. You know it as... Now, Chris, I, I'm very interested to hear your nerd commendation this week. Yeah, man. Okay, so this has been a long and storied history of and, and a much maligned in, in some respects. But I love Cyberpunk 2077. Um, loved it. I just finished the main story. Um, you know, famously, look at our previous you know nerd news story for all the bugs and all the clunkiness of its release and everything, but... I finally purchased it a couple weeks ago on a um, publisher sale on the Microsoft Digital Store, and I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, the if if I could like say anything about it overarchingly, um, it's it's like a love child of Grand Theft Auto, um, oh, uh, Blade Runner. And like any of these detective shows, oh, The Matrix, I mean, Keanu Reeves, you know, is there, obviously. It's just really fun, like this open world kind of Grand Theft Auto. And, and, and famously, like I'm not a Grand Theft Auto person because, call me crazy with my over moral whatever code or whatever i don't like doing the bad guy stuff i like you know doing the right thing and being a hero or whatever and and that is kind of you know given here you can kind of be ambiguous you can do you know positive things you can do negative things you're a merc for hire you can do a whole lot of side quests and this it's just really reimaginative of this futuristic world where you get cybernetic implants to give you you know uh, gameplay advantages and um, you can hack things and you have all these it's just wildly open and I can see um, the ambition in this game and why it kind of has you know even now glitches and, and kind of you know goofs in the game that are still persistent um, not as bad as I heard the horror stories of but um, I really, really enjoyed it. It's really imaginative. It's really expansive. It's really, really fun. Um, probably the most fun I've had gaming this year, I think. Um, you know, it's just really cool. And, and, and just like the whole detective aspect of this where you're solving crimes, you're basically as a merc, you can like do some private investigation missions Um if I had one criticism, the Keanu Reeves of it all is a bit much. We've talked about this before, this oversaturation of the John Wickiness of him. Um, so that whole storyline is a bit okay, buddy, uh, for me. But um, it's still an interesting, really well thought out and, and well told storyline for the main mission. And then for me, the bread and butter are the side quests and the side missions. Those are really fun. You just get to go solve crimes and 
kind of be like a gun for hire and that that's super fun but yeah cyberpunk i i highly recommend it they have a couple of bugs here and there but it's nothing super distracting i did have one goof where i i lost about an hour's worth of save time but that was a that was just a one-time thing and i haven't had any issues i would say um make sure you quick save a lot you know just in case it doesn't auto save um so quick save a lot, but I've really enjoyed it. And I'm still playing through a lot of the side missions. It's very expansive, a lot of bang for your buck when it comes to gameplay. Yeah, see, I remember uh, in the lead up to this game that there was you know, a whole lot of hype uh, because the developers behind the Witcher games uh, were making this game. And then it came out and it was you know extremely glitchy. Uh, there was all sorts of stuff about how, you know, in uh, the owners of the company were trying to push it out really fast because it was so highly anticipated and they wanted to make some money, but the game didn't get the polish it needed. And, it, you know, there was all this stuff. It was removed, I think, from the from the PlayStation Store for a yes. little while. You know, patches have been flying hard and fast. Um, so would you say that this is now at a place where people can play it and enjoy it and kind of judge it not as, you know, this glitchy mess, but something, you know, as a, as a finished work? Yeah, I would say, like, it's 95% fine, glitch-wise. Like, there's there was one mission where the character I was riding in a car with just disappeared. There was another one where the character's coat came to life and just covered the whole screen, like his coat stretched out. But that was like 15 seconds worth of glitch. But the re- for the most part, like I did not have a whole lot of issues. Um, like it, like there are lots of games where you have like a glitch where you die and then you like fly up in the screen. Fallout 76 was much more glitchy for me. Um, and that one uh, was widely criticized for glitches. And that one was much more glitchy than this in my experience. Yeah, see, that sounds really interesting because it's the kind of game that would really get me going. I mean, I like this kind of stuff. Um, but obviously, the the poor reception at launch and the glitchiness has kind of kept me away. So if you're telling me this is about to the point where it's playable, then I might have to dive into this. Yeah, and that's why I fam- you know, that's why I waited as long as I did for them to kind of work out those kinks. And that's as a from a gamer's perspective, from a consumer's perspective, you know, you benefit from. You know, Fallout seventy six is one of those. Uh, Star Wars Battlefront two um, is where something you have a mu- enough noise and negative reception about something there you know the the onus is on the developers to fix it and they i in my opinion they did and from everybody that i've talked to that's actually sat down and played the game it's been overwhelmingly positive reviews as well yeah i'm I'm there for it man all right dave um you have been singing the praises of this comic all week and now that i took advantage of that flash sale you sent me i'm hitting up dc universe infinite and checking it out as well yeah, man, I'm I'm telling you, DC Universe Infinite has been exactly what I needed because I'm finally diving into a whole lot of stuff that uh, I've never had the chance to read and that I'm finding absolutely amazing. I think I've already picked what my next nerd commendation is going to be as well. I've been reading furiously this week. Um, but uh, this week, I just want to nerd commend Superman Smashes the Clan, uh, an absolute fantastic three-issue miniseries that blew my mind. I absolutely love this sucker. Let me go ahead and read the official synopsis to you from DC Comics. The year is 1946, and the Lee family has moved from Metropolis's Chinatown to the center of the bustling city. 
While Dr. Lee is greeted warmly in his new position at the Metropolis Health Department, his two kids, Roberta and Tommy, are more excited about being closer to their famous hero, Superman. Inspired by the 1940 Superman radio serial Clan of the Fiery Cross and drawn by the Japanese duo Guri Hero, Gene Luen Yang, American-born Chinese, Boxers and Saints, The Terrifics, New Superman, brings us his personal retelling of the adventures of the Lee family as they team up with Superman to smash the clan. A rousing story of self-acceptance and standing up to hatred. Superman Smashes the Clan reminds us that not all Golden Age enemies have been defeated. Holy Mother of God, Chris. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin raving about this one. The story is incredibly heartfelt. I would say that it is um, at an all-ages level. I think it's really written and drawn to be consumed by pretty much any age. And yet at the same time, this is not the kind of writing that talks down to its younger viewers or, or readers. It is absolutely fantastic in that. The art is, uh, I would say, maybe slightly anime-inspired, really cartoonish, um, but at the same time, uh, absolutely gorgeous and 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 you know, riveting. They do incredibly cool things in this book about Superman trying to accept his background as an alien. Um, he's grounded initially with the powers that he had during the Golden Age until that slowly starts expanding. Uh, the new characters introduced, particularly uh, Roberta Lee, absolutely a, a wonderful character and one I would love to see more of. And, and sort of this tribute to uh, this bygone era of storytelling for Superman, and at the same time something that feels current and fresh and and, and forward-looking. I think the way Superman is portrayed in this is so quintessential what the character is all about, and at the same time humanizes him to some extent as he struggles trying to you know accept that he is in fact an alien living uh, among humans and that that doesn't make him you know bad or lesser and that he can still be a part of earth even though he's different i think there's just so much about this story that that really resonates uh it's it's gorgeous to look at it's fantastically written i think it is of the last 10 or 20 years easily my favorite portrayal of Superman, who is, as we all know at this point, my all-time favorite character. And so this is high praise I'm singing here. This is, to me, the quintessential Superman. And anybody who is a fan of Superman needs to read Superman Smashes the Clan. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the crap out of some DC stuff right now. I just got out of um, The Batman last night, and I'm immediately reading The Long Halloween, and I'm going to read Year One next. I'm reading Far Sector, and I'm definitely reading this sucker. Like, this is this is right up my alley. This was, it feels like it was written just for me. Um, I, I love um, what I've read of Jin uh, Luen Yang's work, particularly in the Shang-Chi, um, the current Shang-Chi title. Um, I read a little bit of that and absolutely loved it. So I'm definitely checking this one out. It is just so good, Chris. I cannot sing its praises enough. It is so, so a Superman story from top to bottom. It just feels the way Superman should feel. And I'll tell you, you know, we, we've talked a lot about like different portrayals of Superman and some we've liked, you know, Superman and Lois is pretty good. And some we, we didn't like as much. I think Man of Steel was kind of a misfire. But then you put this Superman next to all of those other, you know, more recent interpretations and they all pale in comparison. This, this is Superman. 
Superman who gives his cape to a little girl as a souvenir after they try to save somebody together. Like this, this is Superman. And anybody who thinks that Superman is unrelatable or overpowered or not an interesting character, like read this book, people. This is Superman. Yeah, I'm checking it out. Definitely. All righty, folks. Well, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure you get on your favorite podcasting platform. Drop us a rating, a review, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can find us anywhere podcasts are available. Um, you can find us on, on Apple Podcasts on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and of course, our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And please be sure to hit us up on social media uh, with your thoughts on how you would fix the X-Men film, uh, the 2000 film, and what you hope to see with their introduction into the MCU. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.